I'm Brittany Hardin-Tangway, a manager with KPMG, and I am fascinated by the practice of transfer pricing and its impact on the global market. Join me each episode as I explore the transfer pricing world with specialists who will explain the ins and outs of this niche practice where tax meets economics. We have had a number of episodes on exploring transfer pricing, talking about a variety of industries, and we're going to start to take a step into the real estate industry, but I don't think we can talk about transfer pricing in real estate without talking about a very important concept, which we define as real estate investment trusts, which are REITs. And so I know very little about this, but I'm excited to have two brilliant minds to help me figure this out. Sharon Liu, a principal in transfer pricing who's based out of Chicago, and she is KPMG's Economic and Valuation Services Industry Leader for Real Estate. So thank you for being here, Sharon. Thank you, Brittany. Happy to be here. And we also have Stephen Giordano, a principal with Washington National Tax in the Pass-Throughs Group, and he actually leads our REITs practice for Washington National Tax. Hi, Brittany. Very good to be here. Thank you, Steve. And I know you are not a transfer pricing person, but one of the things that I love about transfer pricing is that we have to be connected with all different aspects of tax, especially when we're trying to solve complex problems for our clients. Stephen, will you give us an overview of what REITs are, a little bit of the history, and help set the stage? Sure. REITs have been around for about 60 years. Probably the best way to think about them is that they operate a little bit like a mutual fund for real estate. Now, as a practical matter, there is all types of different assets that a REIT can own that maybe don't fit within the traditional model, as people would think about it, of real estate. So the first image of what pops into their head, if you say real estate, is usually an office building or an apartment building. But there is actually a fairly large category of different assets that are real estate for tax purposes and specifically for REIT purposes. They can also be engaged in finance, so they can own real estate mortgages. But the idea is that these entities can own a variety of different assets. They can be public or private entities. They can be traded or not traded. And they have the great benefit, which is really key for real estate investors, of not paying tax as a general matter, provided they follow a series of rules. The way real estate investment works is that tax is a very critical part of the way capital is allocated in a real estate investment and in the real estate industry very generally. And tax is taken into account when determining whether or not an investment is going to be viable, the nature of the risk on the investment, and whether somebody should underwrite that investment and put their money where their mouth is. And one of the benefits is that REITs don't pay tax. So it ends up being a pretty helpful tool toward bringing in capital into different real estate investments. In a public context or a private context, generally the assets can be the same, but the REIT in a different context can provide different benefits for different investors. So in a public context, it's obviously a much better choice, a REIT, than a C-corporation for investing in real estate, typically because the REIT doesn't pay any tax, where C-corporations pay tax at 21%. Can you help me understand what the incentive is from the government perspective to enable there to be no taxes paid on REITs? Really, it's about incentivizing capital formation and investment Mm -hmm. by different classes of investors in real estate. 
it tends to be difficult for folks without a certain critical mass of capital, in other words, money, to invest in real estate. They may not be able to necessarily hire the brokers, the tax advisors. They may not be able to take the risk associated with mortgages and loans in order to make it efficient for them. And what the REIT allows them to do is have a piece of that type of business and push the risk, the business expertise, the need for diversification onto the REIT. That's the basic idea. We've done an episode previously on asset management, looking at financial assets, and we make very clear that we're talking about financial assets. And spoiler alert to people who listen to the podcast, we're going to have an episode in the future that will actually talk about physical property asset management. And this is that perfect gateway between the two, because it seems to be a blending of a tangible asset that you can also invest in as a financial asset. If you're a portfolio investor, you will generally compare the REIT's performance against other similar types of financial assets. You might compare it against growth stocks, value stocks, depending upon the nature of the REIT's business. It's also one of the things that REITs have to do is pay dividends, generally at least equal to their taxable income. Now, that means that you can compare very frequently REITs as dividend stocks to other cash-producing investments like bonds. So from that standpoint, there is a finance or portfolio investment angle, and that you can compare to certain other types of financial assets. But the REIT itself often operates, as do many other real estate businesses. So you get both the real estate nature of the business as well as the financial nature of the investment in the business. That's excellent. And this is a podcast about transfer pricing. So now that we have a good understanding of what REITs are, (laughs) where does transfer pricing fit into this? Well, there are probably two or three different places where transfer pricing is key. There are a series of rules that REITs need to abide by. There are certain opportunities for a REIT to do things indirectly through a taxable subsidiary that it can't necessarily do directly. In other words, not through a taxable subsidiary. And obviously, if we're doing something through a taxable subsidiary, there is a general economic desire to try to minimize the tax that's going to get paid by that taxable subsidiary while still being consistent with the spirit of the rules that transfer pricing governs. You want to produce a result that is economic and that leaves the government with the right amount of tax at the end of the day. And that's something that does happen or REIT when they engage in activities that they can't necessarily do directly. In fact, the REIT statute actually contemplates that these taxable subsidiary transactions are going to happen. In the two particular places where it's really critical, it's something that Congress set up for the purpose of REITs being able to use, is the way REITs now invest in hospitality assets, hotels, as well as assets like assisted living facilities. Both of those types of investments very frequently have within them a fundamental component which requires transfer pricing analysis and oftentimes transfer pricing support from the experts like Sharon. Like Steve said, it's no different from other areas of transfer pricing in other industries. Once you have that controlled relationship, the REIT rules do cross-reference the transfer pricing regulation. Section 482 is a reference point for how you're going to go about establishing the correct pricing between those entities. So for the hotels and the assisted care facilities, the typical analysis we perform on that transaction is what is the correct intercompany rent to be paid between that taxable REIT subsidiary or TRS for short and the property owner. 
So it does certainly come back to traditional transfer pricing principles, but the nature of the REIT rules, the very detailed requirements related to the rules, I find myself having to be really grounded in that general understanding of those nuances within the REIT rules because it causes you to have to adjust the typical mindset of a transfer pricing practitioner. Let's get into some specifics about that. What is something that surprises you that you have to turn off your transfer pricing instincts when you start working on a REIT transaction? So one of the biggest things outside of REITs and transfer pricing is there's been a real focus on the substance, the people functions performed in an entity and the risks controlled by individuals and employees that you would typically see in a legal entity and the emphasis on ensuring that substance aligns with the economic returns that we're saying belong to that particular entity. In the REIT space, the TRS, which is the taxable entity that we're typically looking at initially evaluating and benchmarking when we do the transfer pricing analysis, as a function of the REIT rules, there are no employees there. And that entity plays a very specific role for hospitality and assisted living properties where the function in and of itself of that entity, absent any employees, is really to hold a contract with an independent management entity that really operates the properties. So if you're someone coming new into the industry with a lot of transfer pricing experience, that can be very jarring because right away you're on guard about, okay, well, how am I going to approach benchmarking? Isn't this sort of a major risk because there's really no people or the the typical quote-unquote substance that we expect to see in that entity? It's all form and no substance. That's right. (laughs) Maybe this is the time to pause and say REITs are a very American rule, right? There are a few other governments that have put in place REIT regimes. Uh Uh, We have done a pretty good job of exporting our tax law over (laughs) the decades. That's good to know. All form and no substance. That's totally different. And we have to think about comparabilities. Sharon, are there special secret databases to find <laughs> these things that you only know if you get invited into the REIT corner of the transfer pricing world? <laughs> Not really. I throw that one out there because it's the most jarring. But when you understand the rules, you get over that hurdle. Then I think you find yourself back in more typical transfer pricing land where it is, well, you got to go out and find the right comparables. The TRS is an entity that doesn't really exist in nature. So as transfer pricing practitioners, we can be creative, but that's no different than for other areas of transfer pricing where you never get quite exact perfect comparability. Where we really exercise our transfer pricing muscles is we say, well, we recognize these are not perfect comparables. So we think it's appropriate to look at both sides of the transactions. And in that case, as a real estate owner, there's a lot of publicly available data and good data with close comparability to say, well, what is the appropriate return to the owner side of the transaction? So one common way that we bridge the analysis in general, it makes our work more robust is to ensure that we're looking at both sides of the transactions and finding a result that is overlapping. And therefore, in theory, you can argue, yeah, two third parties would agree to this price because we've proved it out on both sides. I like it whenever you get to use a two-sided analysis. This TRS is a fiction. And if we're treating it as our tested party, you're layering in until you really get comfortable. So being able to evaluate on both sides, that seems more fair. I'm always trying to strive for when working in transfer pricing. What's fair to both parties given the nature of the transaction? So... Exactly. And on the other side of the transaction, it is typically a benchmark that transfer pricing practitioners love cups or comparable uncontrolled mm. prices. And that's 
how we viewed some of the data we're typically able to get as far as benchmarking the appropriate return to the lessor. On the one hand, you've got a challenge to benchmark an entity that's a construct of the regulations and therefore difficult to benchmark. But on the other side, you've got what we love as transfer pricing practitioners, which is as good of a comp as you can find that's publicly available. And something else that's distinct about this are penalties, because that's also a strong motivator to ensure that these entities get it right. Coming into it as a transfer pricing practitioner and being used to the 40 to 60% penalty range, it was certainly also jarring to learn that the penalties in the case of redetermined deductions or rents in the case of the intercompany lease transactions, it's a 100% penalty, which is extremely punitive and certainly a motivator to focus on having the proper transfer pricing support. We're a conservative bunch, read practitioners, so we naturally veer toward being very conservative in the transaction for hospitality-assisted living facilities and healthcare properties that is very common for REITs involves a lease by the REIT of the property, so the hotel, the assisted living facility, to a taxable subsidiary. So there is an incentive looking at it from the government's perspective for the rent to be paid by the taxable subsidiary to be as high as possible. The idea being that you want to produce a higher level of expense in the taxable subsidiary, thereby shrinking the amount of taxable subsidiary income that generates tax. There is this general concern. When these structures went into play, the government noticed, and they put in place a 100% penalty on the redetermined deductions. And that allows us to be a little bit more comfortable in our conservatism. So we do tend to want to get it right. And there are a number of very technical read reasons why we want to make sure we get the pricing right on these leases to the taxable subsidiaries at the outset, not least of which is this 100% tax. Because we are so conservative, the issues for retaxation tend to be ones where there isn't a very great amount of risk after we're done doing our work. They're taking steps that are going to leave the possibility of losing on an audit at a relatively low possibility. With transfer pricing, even with the penalty, it's less of a all or nothing. And it is something where consistent with the way you approach your analysis, there is a range of different outcomes. And there is an art in choosing the right type of approach to transfer pricing. You want to make sure that you're going to avoid these giant whopping penalties, but you also want to make sure that you are being a good tax advisor and putting your client into the right place where they're paying the right amount of tax. We've established why this is very important. And going forward, are there things that we should be thinking about? What I'd lead with may be obvious to some listeners, having survived through the pandemic, the impact to some of these industry groups within real estate that we've talked about with the hospitality and assisted care properties were dramatically impacted by the pandemic. So we've been going through a period of ongoing discussions with our clients. You really have to take a step back and say, well, this is a never before seen impact. How are we going to react to that and ensure that we're giving solid advice around market behavior when the market is unfolding before us and everyone's reacting concurrently. It's been very dynamic as far as being an advisor in this space. So still certainly prudent to do the transfer pricing and have the requisite support. Sharon mentioned the economic approach that her and her team uses for analyzing comparables in their transfer pricing work for our clients. I remember those early days of COVID where many of our clients, particularly those in the hospitality industry, their businesses were entirely shut down and reaching for a comparable result 
in those types of situations was difficult. It was a unique situation for pretty much all of us. We often say that transfer pricing is an art and a science, and this is a perfect example of layering in, pretending like related parties are unrelated, and then pretending that these taxable subsidiaries, these TRSs exist in the real world. This was fascinating. Thank you both for joining me. I certainly learned a lot, and I know our listeners did too. Thanks very much, Brittany. Yeah, thank you. It was great to be here. Thanks for joining me on this adventure in transfer pricing. See you next time. And special thanks to Seth Salinger from the Minneapolis office with KPMG US who helped make this episode possible.